Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, crazy martinis for conservatives today. But of course, as I previewed yesterday, Jim, today is Greek Independence Day. But it's not just any Greek Independence Day. It's the bicentennial of modern Greek independence. Of course, the golden age of Greece, you know, 300s, 400s BC. Any culture, society can have a 2300-year down cycle. So I'm sure our... (laughs) Upside is coming soon. But uh, at that time, we came up with things, you know, like democracy, philosophy, theater, Olympics, you know, little things like that. But then, of course, uh, the Byzantine Empire uh, came, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire. And then, of course, we were ruthlessly uh, conquered by the Turks in the 13 and 1400s. But in 1821, on this date, the, uh, the Greeks declared their independence. And much like our own independence, we declared the independence before we won the war. And so uh, another decade uh, ensued before the Greeks actually won their independence. Now, when I was a kid, there was this certificate on the wall at my grandparents' house. Both of my grandparents on the Greek side were immigrants. And it was a certificate honoring the service of my grandfather's grandfather, so my great-great-grandfather, in the war for Greek independence. But I didn't really know what he did. And then after my dad died a couple of years ago, my wife's aunt dug up a recording that my grandfather did in the 1950s, and he explained what happened. Uh, It was actually forces from Egypt, which were part of the Ottoman Empire at that time, were coming through the mountainous region of Greece, and they somehow knew that these forces were coming. So my great-great-grandfather and other people in the village there, they took the women and children up to the caves to hide them from the uh, invading forces, and then as the Egyptian forces came through the ravine, They dropped massive boulders on them and crushed them. It was one of the first things that actually went right for the Greeks in the War for Independence. So uh, I find that to be kind of an interesting little family story. So happy Greek independence. You know, Greg, when you said you wanted to start the show with a family story, you know, we we do this by audio. So listeners may or may not realize that I can't see Greg and Greg can't see me. And it's best that he couldn't because I kind of rolled my eyes. I was like, okay, fine, whatever, great. But that's an awesome story. It's like something <laughs> out of 300 or, you know, yes. I'm picturing a Raiders of the Lost Ark style boulder accelerating as it comes upon the soldiers. So, uh, no, that really is cool. And uh, are we supposed to break a break a plate now or something? <laughs> uh, we actually- known fact, by the way. Greg, the yeah. reason Greece has an unbelievable debt problem is they constantly have to buy new plates for all the celebrations. <laughs> they have. That's exactly right. Anyway, on to our actual good martini today. Jim, uh, Dr. Fauci keeps having kind of a sliding scale on what will constitute herd immunity and us getting back to normal. But Marty McCary, who is a doctor at Johns Hopkins University and is considered a leading expert on this, actually thinks we're quite a bit closer to herd immunity than Fauci does. Uh, He wrote for the Wall Street Journal yesterday, and it says, uh, Fauci has been saying that the country needs to vaccinate 70 to 85 percent of the population to reach herd immunity, but he inexplicably ignores natural immunity. So if you account for previous infections, herd immunity is likely close at hand. And he goes into a little bit of detail here. Data from the California Department of Public Health released earlier this month show that while only 8.7% of the state's population has ever tested positive for COVID-19, at least 38.5% of the population has antibodies against the novel coronavirus. Those numbers are from January 30th to February 20th, adjusting for cases between now and then and accounting for the amount of time it takes for the body to make antibodies We can estimate that as many as half of Californians have natural immunity today. And of course, 
Jim, we know there are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic cases where people may not have even bothered to get tested because they didn't think it was anything major. And they may have antibodies, so the numbers could actually be a little bit better than that. So uh, anytime we're ahead of the curve, and especially ahead of the curve that Fauci is touting at the moment, I'll take it. We might be close to normalcy. Yeah, and uh, one of the, you know, I think less impressive moments for Fauci during this pandemic has been when somebody went back and noticed that every month or so, his definition of the percentage that probably would be needed to reach herd immunity went up like another 5%. It went from 75% to 80% to 85% to 90%. And eventually, I think it was uh, Don McNeil, uh, who the New York Times staffers believe is the most dangerous human being on earth, (laughs) um, their science correspondent who kind of said to Fauci, like, do you realize you're doing this? And is this deliberate? And Fauci's like, yeah, I kind of felt like people couldn't handle the real truth. So I kept kind of, you know, nudging it in a particular direction, which I think is not good. If you're Fauci, we pay you to tell it to us straight. Give us what you really think. If if you change your mind based on new data, that's fine. But let us know and say, all right, I was saying it was this threshold. I think it's a little higher based on what I'm seeing here, here, and here. I didn't do that. But uh, the look, a point to keep in mind here that I think is important and I think lends a little more credulity to... um, the assessment in that Wall Street Journal op-ed is that herd immunity is not an on-off switch. You know, it's a dimmer switch. We, you know, as more and more people get vaccinated and more and more people have the antibodies from catching it, you know, we're, we're get closer and closer. And of course, as you get closer to herd immunity, the virus has a harder time spreading to new people because it starts running out of people who don't have the uh, the antibodies. And so, you know, if your average person, if it might jump to two people, well, if one person's already vaccinated, then it only jumps to one person. We should be seeing good things happening in the numbers in terms of cases, in terms of hospitalizations, and in terms of deaths. And we've really seen that, particularly in that those latter two. Um, and we're now averaging about 2.5 million doses a day. We're up to 130 million doses. Those are really good numbers. And so if that's not quite a percentage point a day, but like, actually, it might be a little more than that, actually, if you're only vaccinating adults. Um, so, you know, think about it. One week goes by, you're up another 7% or so. Two weeks go by, you've increased it by 15%. So we really should be closing in. If we're not there, we probably are not quite there, but we are closing in on it pretty rapidly. One of the things I just want to point out here is that, you know, the other thing which would be really good for our death numbers and hospitalization numbers, by and large, we're vaccinating the people who need it most. Uh, Just check the CDC figures this morning. Uh, According to them, 70% of Americans who are 65 years or older, the traditional definition of seniors, have received at least one dose, and more than 43% are fully vaccinated. Probably in the next week, two weeks, somewhere in there, we will hit more than half Americans who are more than half of all American seniors will be fully vaccinated. Now, I guess, you know, and by the way, that's also like not just getting the shot. It generally is taking about two weeks afterwards to fully get in there. So, um, we'll probably never know exactly where we are until we see a sudden drop in the cases. And, you know, lots of Americans have not had the opportunity to get the vaccine yet. Um, I'm struck by how much I hear talking about vaccine hesitancy, which will be a problem someday. But, and, and, you know, you could argue there are, you know, seniors out there who we want to get vaccinated who are wary about it. Uh, I think it's probably much more likely that it's issue of logistical problems, like, a uh, really good account of the problems of getting New Yorkers to their, New York City residents to their vaccines. But by and large, the people who are most vulnerable are getting vaccinated. And so we're, you know, herd immunity uh, is great to have. It's really great to have when you've actually got everybody who's most vulnerable to it, who's been always already protected of it. So, you know, a healthy 22-year-old gets the virus, they're, you know, maybe they feel sick, 40% chance they're asymptomatic, they'll probably be fine. So all in all, 
Um, I think we're in, in you know, pretty darn good shape. And it does feel like one more strong argument that Fauci is being a little too cautious at minimum and a little too, I don't know if pessimistic is the right term, but uh, too much emphasis on the part of the glass that is half empty. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't really learned his lesson. I mean, he he lost a lot of credibility, uh, at least among certain uh, segments of the population, with his back and forth on masks right out of the gate. And he's still doing it with this. I mean, I don't know if he thinks he's Colonel Nathan Jessup from A Few Good Men and he thinks we can't handle the truth. But trust me, if you give us the truth and you stay consistent, people are going to give you a lot more credibility. It's just, just amazing. My strong suspicion is that he and lots of other public health experts just decided that the moment they let, you know, that they say, oh, this is, you know, uh, fine, or this is doing, we're doing well, or this is, you know, the moment they give any type of good news, they're afraid you'll see people on spring break uh, doing body shots and stuff like that, or that, you know, that pool of the Ozarks out in Missouri, which, oh, by the way, did not uh, cause a giant spread in in, uh, cases, uh, despite everyone's predictions. And just kind of this, you know, that we can't give people good news or else they'll act irresponsibly. Well, the end result is you're constantly giving people bad news. And then after a while, they tune it out because it feels like nothing ever seems to get any better. Yeah, that's utterly ridiculous. You, you can only build credibility one way, and that's being honest. And like Jim said, if the data changes, that's fine. But uh, uh, just, just deal it straight. All right. Speaking of dealing it straight, you don't get that much on social media platforms these days in big tech. They clearly have chosen sides. Uh, We see it in the media about what they will cover, what they won't cover. But uh, let there be no doubt, big tech in many ways is trying to suppress speech they don't agree with. So why exactly are we choosing to give these companies all of our personal data? Because we really are. The lines have been drawn. Big tech has made it clear which side they're on. But now, you have a chance to take a stance. Protect your personal data from big tech with the VPN that you can trust for your online protection. And that's ExpressVPN. You see, every device, whether you're on your phone or your laptop or your TV, has a unique string of numbers called an IP address. And when you search for stuff, or if you watch videos, or even when you click on a link, the big tech companies can use that IP to track all your activity and tie it back to you. When you use ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through their secure encrypted servers. So these companies can't see your IP address at all. Your internet activity becomes anonymized and your network data is encrypted. And the best part is you don't need to be tech savvy to use ExpressVPN. You just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button and you are protected. So stop handing your big data to big tech companies whose aim is to kind of censor you and even spy on you. Defend your rights, protect your internet activity with the VPN that you can use every single day to keep your data safe. Visit expressvpn.com slash martini. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash martini to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash martini right now to learn more. All right, Jim, let's get to our bad martini now. And it was a little over a year ago now, hard to believe, that uh, Joe Biden had emerged from getting hammered in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. Uh, Got a big win in South Carolina. Then a lot of the other Democrats got out of his way. So he could be the more viable candidate to take out Bernie Sanders and eventually take on Donald Trump. And he did take out Bernie Sanders. And he did take on Donald Trump. And he's now president of the United States. But the big argument as to why we needed Biden, or at least the Democrats thought we needed Biden, as opposed to Bernie, was not only did they think he had a better chance to win, but we need this return to normalcy. We're not going uh, full socialism. And then Biden, of course, embraced much of the, the Bernie agenda. But Biden was just the return to normalcy. After four years of Trump, we just want to get back to normalcy. 
Oh, what a lie that is. Axios with the story today that Biden is looking to go perhaps to FDR, LBJ levels on activism with policy and possibly even beyond. Axios says that Biden recently held an undisclosed East Room session with historians that included discussion of how big is too big and how fast is too fast to jam through once-in-a-lifetime historic changes to America. When it comes to why it matters, the historian's views were very much in sync with his own. It is time to go even bigger and faster than anyone expected. And if that means chucking the filibuster and bipartisanship, so be it. People close to Biden tell us he's feeling bullish on what he can accomplish and is fully prepared to support the dashing of the Senate's filibuster to allow Democrats to pass voting rights and other trophy legislation for his party. He also loves the growing narrative that he's bolder and bigger thinking than President Obama even. And I think one of these historians was Michael Beschloss, who I think has been broken in some ways by Trump. He used to be an interesting guy who leaned left and posted historical photos, and now he's pretty much ranting like a crazy person anytime Trump is in the news. But uh, Jim, this is the guy who was supposed to uh, bring us back uh, to a place we remembered away from the partisan bickering and the the dividing of America. And now a guy who uh, has a divided Senate, lost a lot of ground in the House, although the Democrats still control it, and uh, won the Electoral College by, you know, combining the the uh, popular votes of about 50,000 in a number of key states, not exactly a mandate, uh, is willing to go big and bold here in a way that could make America very, very different in a very bad way. Yeah, I mean, for much of 2020 and right after the election, my, my thinking was not necessarily that Biden would do this, but Biden could do, you know, if he chose to simply not, you know, the, the, the notion that he was elected on this mandate of just don't be Trump, right? America wanted to go back to normal. They were tired of the drama. They were tired of the circus. And they were certainly tired of the pandemic that all Biden had to do was get the vaccines that had already been produ- produced on Operation Warp Speed, get them distributed, let Americans get back to their lives. If you do that, everybody goes back to the restaurants, everybody goes back to their bars, they start traveling again. We get all this pent up demand that has been building up for the better part of a year, gets let out there, the economy should be do- you know, doing gangbusters, and that you know the- America would be happy. And in fact, you could almost have this quote unquote era of good feelings, right? There's this restoration of just back to normal life which looks really good when you've been through the calamity that was the year 2020 was. Well, but that's not enough for Biden. And he's probably going to louse this up and he's probably going to botch this. And what's fascinating is that you, you look at the FDR and LBJ comparisons. Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson won huge mandates. They had huge, bi- and also, by the way, most of their proposals actually had a decent amount of bipartisan support. As you mentioned, you know, it's not just, that, oh, the Democrats, you know, have a 50-50 split in the Senate where Kamala Harris is, is you know, settling the ties. It's you think about it, they have that majority because of Ossoff's 55,000 vote margin in Georgia. You can go back and look at other, you know, fairly close Senate races. John James, who, by the way, apparently is thinking of running for governor, which is good news. He didn't win a huge mandate. That was great. You know, he won 81 million votes. Good for him. A lot of a whole bunch of people voted for him. But it's you know, if they'd wanted Sanders, they would have elected Bernie Sanders. The fact that he, Biden won and the fact that Sanders didn't win should kind of give him this giant sign. Hey, 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 maybe there really wasn't a mandate for this. Oh, by the way, you lost a bunch of seats in the House. That's probably an indicator that some Americans aren't completely on board with the entire left wing Democratic agenda. Um, the fact that you didn't gain any seats down to get in state legislature should be another you know, glaring indicator of this. Like all of this says America just wants you to be normal, Joe. And instead, you've decided, no, no, I got to be revolutionary. I got to make this giant change to American life. Last year brought some of the worst changes to American life we've had. Nobody's clamoring for a giant governmental uh, expansion on this scale. 
And it's kind of fascinating to see how quickly he's botching it and how much he really wants to pretend that he won this landslide and a legislative branch landslide. And, you know, in, in the House and the Senate, my colleague Kyle Smith had the observation. The other really interesting thing about Lyndon Johnson is that when he won in 1964, he won in large part because of sympathy uh, over JFK's assassination. And Barry Goldwater, as much as we may love him as conservatives, was a fairly controversial choice, right? It's not like America had, you know, had this completely on board with every aspect of the LBJ agenda in 1964. And so there's this interesting parallel that Lyndon Johnson you know, took this cr perceived crisis moment to push through a huge set of programs the voters hadn't really asked for. And maybe we're getting the exact same thing again. But hey, LBJ's presidency ended up great, didn't it, Greg? Yeah, no. Everybody no. loved him. <laughs> Not exactly. Uh, yeah, he had to actually abandon his own presidential reelection campaign in 68. But uh, yeah, $5 trillion plus overhaul of America, which I think is on top of the $2 trillion in the relief bill. Uh, I mean, three of that's going to be infrastructure. He also, of course, wants to overhaul voting, immigration, whatever is involved in his uh, inequality agenda. So we'll see how aggressive he gets here, Jim. He's going to need all Democrats in the Senate on board to get what he wants done. But if he goes way too big, uh, he's probably going to lose the House. But uh, this is everything we didn't want in this election. And we'll see uh, just how far Democrats are willing to go to destroy rules and tradition to, to get what they want. I think they're going to go pretty far. Mansion, cinema. We need a couple other guys who we think could, you know, might, be, might realize what they're stepping into here. Uh, could be. Feinstein. Coons, maybe? I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> Feinstein has kind of backed away from her defense of the filibuster. I don't know if that's uh, to, to keep her seat for the rest of her term since everybody's trying to shove her out. But uh, before we leave Joe Biden, Jim, uh, by the time a lot of folks hear this, he'll have had his first press conference. I assume this is going to be a lot like the debates where uh, people assume he's going to drool all over himself. And then when he doesn't, it's going to be declared that all the criticisms of his faculties are completely unwarranted and partisan. But I have a feeling he's going to have a general idea of which topics at least are going to come up, if not the questions. Um, probably the most delightful thing I have encountered in the last 24 to 48 hours, Greg, is uh, Dana Carvey appearing on Stephen Colbert's program and doing his Biden impression. Yeah. And Dana Carvey, who obviously was famous for doing a George H.W. Bush impression and, and also like the funny, hilarious, but also like not a mean one. And, you know, George H.W. Bush apparently thought it was hilarious. Carby's impression of Biden is that he's full of this authentic figure, but he kind of like never finishes a thought. And so he's like, folks, you know, it, it's, you know, there are three things we got to do first, you know, what he said, the, the first one and two, the second, you know, like, again, you know, I think of my dad and my dad lost his, you know, the, the job and the, the, I lost the dog and the dog and the job, you know, I'm not, I'm not goofing around here. You know, I'm not doing it as well as, as Carby's doing it. But it's just this like constant sentence fragment, sentence fragment, sentence fragment. A lot of it very recognizable by Biden. I suspect we'll get some variation of that. And of course, everyone will insist, oh, no, don't worry. He's fine. Oh, we'll see how long he's out there, too. But uh, anyway, I mean, we hope he's doing well physically, but uh, questions are persisting for, for reasons. But we'll see. All right. Well, let's talk about my pillow. Uh, if he needs more rest, that's a good option. But my pillow is more than just fantastic pillows. They give that same attention to quality to their towels and sheets. And right now, three Martini Lunch listeners, you can buy one, get one free on all six-piece towel sets and the Giza Dream sheet sets. My pillow towels have a proprietary technology that makes these towels highly absorbent. They're soft to the touch without that lotion-y feel. 
They come with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. They're washable, they're dryable, and they have seven colors to choose from. Towels are great. So are the sheets. The MyPillow Giza Dreams bed sheets are made with the world's best cotton. The sateen weave gives them a great luxurious finish and helps you sleep great. Also, a 10-year warranty and 60-day money-back guarantee. Washable and dryable with a wide variety of colors and sizes. Go to MyPillow.com to order right now. Three Martini Lunch listeners. Again, all six-piece towel sets and the Giza sheets are buy one, get one free. Just use the promo code MARTINI at checkout or use the code by calling 800-874-0104. That's MyPillow.com, code MARTINI, or call 800-874-0104 for buy one, get one free on all six-piece towel sets and the Giza Dream Sheets. All right, Jim, let's move to our crazy martini now. And this is just bizarre, but uh, as most people know, a ton of commerce moves around the world each day, and there are certain points where it's really important that the commerce keeps flowing. Panama Canal would be one, and so would the Suez Canal. But in the Suez Canal, things are not moving. CBS News, marine traffic through the Suez Canal remained blocked on Thursday for the third consecutive day, with dozens of ships stuck at both the north and south entrances to the shortest route between Asia and Africa. One of the world's largest cargo vessels turned sideways and got stuck across the narrow canal on Tuesday, and one of the teams in charge of dislodging the vessel said it could take weeks to get freight moving again. They're trying to like dig around the sides of the canal to create more space for this thing uh, to, to turn around. So I'm sure there's jokes about this captain's driving ability, but Jim, you know, if they have to take these ships around the Horn of Africa, that's going to add a lot of time. It's going to take more fuel. It's going to make products a lot more expensive, and things are already getting more expensive with the cost of fuel on the rise. So the impact could be significant, particularly if this actually does last a couple of months. Greg, you know how bad an error this is? Captain <laughs> Hazelwood of Exxon Valdez is like, what is that guy doing? <laughs> Going deep old school for that one. So I, I look at this, Greg, and my first thought is, how did we manage to go what is coming up on 20 years since the 9-11 attacks? And Al-Qaeda and ISIS and every other radical extremist group that operates in the entire Middle East region and that, you know, have, you know, roots in Egypt and, and all that stuff. How did we manage to go 20 years without a terrorist group doing it? But one idiot captain somehow managed to do this. Secondly, we've all probably been in a situation where we've had to make a, go on into a one-way street or, or a, a, a dead end or something like that, try to find parking and, you know, go in an alley between two buildings or something. And you find yourself, you got to make it turn around and you have nowhere near enough room to make that K-turn the way you want it to. The infamous scene in Austin Powers where he's trying to back up in a hallway and he's got it, you know, he's moving like one inch every time he, you know, adjusts his, uh, his thing. I, that's what I imagine is happening somewhere in the Suez Canal. I have seen some pictures and I assume they're not Photoshopped, of like they're sending construction equipment and guys, it's going to take more than like a backhoe to get this like giant ship. But the other thing is like the, the width of the canal, at least at this particular spot is roughly the length of one tanker. So he really had to go almost perpendicular to the way that a ship would manage to go. You're looking at that and you're just like, okay, look, I'm not a ship captain. I think I'm okay driver. I think I'm okay in all the other vehicles I've, I've tried to operate. But, you know, you'd like to think that even if you or I or, or any listeners out there were behind the, the wheel, and I'm picturing some of those old pirate ship giant wheel type things, that we could manage to not go perpendicular to the direction you're supposed to go. Um, these ships don't stop on a dime. These ships don't turn on a dime. You really got to louse it up to get to that point. Hopefully, they'll be able to straighten this out. My limited experience with the Egyptians does not make me optimistic. 
And it's absolutely kind of fascinating. Like, you know, we, I think we were prepared for some sort of malevolent group or entity to try to do something like this. Um, but we never are truly prepared for just good old fashioned sheer incompetence. You know, Jim, how you get frustrated if you're like uh, behind somebody at the toll booth or uh, leaving a parking garage and you're like, what's taking these people so long? So if you've sailed all the way through the Mediterranean Sea and, and you're like, what's wrong up here? Uh-oh. Oh, we're not going anywhere for a while. <laughs> it's kind of like when the when the state police shuts down an interstate, and you're just like, "Yeah, oh, I still got five hours to go." And now I that have no jackknife tractor trailer, you're like, "Okay, this is not getting fixed anytime soon." Yeah, right. but there's no exits. There's no exits at the Suez Canal. You can't get off on the local state highway and go around it. But uh, hopefully, it's resolved soon. Uh, wow. Anyway, Jim. On that note, uh, we're not at the Suez Canal, so that's good news today. See you tomorrow. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Thank you for those very kind reviews and your five-star ratings. We always appreciate those. Also, remember you can get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. I know the border crisis is real because I've seen it with my own eyes. This is Sarah Carter. On The Sarah Carter Show, I'm bringing you stories from McAllen, Texas to Yuma, Arizona that the mainstream media won't cover and the Biden administration won't even admit is happening. This crisis is a threat to our national security, our economy, and the safety of the people that are desperate to come to America. Don't miss a single show. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.